Well, good morning, church. Again, so glad to see each of you here this morning. Today we are continuing our series called Talking Points. And what we're doing is we're, we're looking at common points of conversation that will come up as we get to know unbelievers and non-Christians around us. And so this is a topical series. My uh, normal method of preaching is to go through a book of the Bible passage by passage. So we're, this is different, and, and I think it's okay to do something a little different every now and then. And that's what we're doing here in August, is walking through this so that we can uh, be equipped to know how to engage the world with these talking points of conversation. And so our base verse for this series is 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 15, which says this. Peter says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So, what we have to see here is that there are people all around us who are hurting, who are broken, who need the hope of Jesus Christ. The question is, as Peter is challenging us, how are we preparing to talk to them about that? Peter reminds us the key is to do it with gentleness, with respect for the individual. So probably nine times out of ten, that is going to happen in the context of ongoing dialogue, right? Or in the context of just friendship. You already have, all of us who are Christians, who are believers, who follow Jesus, we all have someone in our lives who doesn't. You already know someone who's not a believer, so who is that person? And so the point of this series is to, to steer us in the right direction with certain topics that arise within these ongoing friendships, these ongoing conversations. So let's be clear, and this is especially true today, my, my sermon points in this series are not like, hey, you know, just do these three things and it'll magically work, right? That's, that's not it. It's not that easy. Not at all. But my hope is that as we discuss these topics in here, right, that you will feel a little more prepared out there to engage the world and to seek to win people we know to the love of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to continue in this discussion by looking at how we might respond when someone says this, I just, you know, I don't really believe in the Bible. So what, what are we going to say? How are we going to engage in conversation when that is the stumbling block for someone in coming to faith. Well, I just don't believe the Bible is God's word, or I don't believe in the Bible. Well, before we dig into the details, let's pray again, and let's ask Jesus to help us, to help us understand how we can engage with these folks. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, we just, we love you, and we're so glad and honored to be able to even be here to worship you, and I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts this morning through your word. Show us how we can talk and engage with people around us about the Bible when it comes up in conversation. Lord, let us leave here today more confident, not in ourselves, but in your truth and in who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when someone says they don't believe in the Bible, 
they could mean a number of things. Maybe they think the Bible is outdated. So it's just an ancient book that it's just not relevant to today's world, to today's society and the things and the problems going on in the world today. Or maybe they would say that the Bible is just a collection of myths or fairy tales, right? These are just made up stories that give like good moral lessons to learn from, sure. Or maybe they think the Bible has been corrupted over the years as it has been translated and passed down through the generations. Perhaps that is the hang-up. Or maybe they believe Jesus was a real person and he was even a good teacher. But they don't believe that the Bible is actually God's word. Maybe they're adherents of another religion, right? And so they hold to a sacred text themselves, but of course it's the text of that religion. Or maybe, and this is very common in our world today, Maybe they just reject the concept of absolute truth in general. So with the secularization of our society today, our culture basically says, you don't need to look outside of yourself or above yourself for truth. No, you have to look within yourself for truth, to discover what is true for you. You see, but as Christians, we, we know better. We, we believe there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. And specifically, we believe that this standard of truth is from God himself and that he gave it to us in written form called what we call today as the Bible. So I just want to be clear as a church, before I even go any further in discussing the Bible today, let's talk about what we believe real quick as a church. So here at Kernan, here's what we believe about the Bible. Straight out of 2 Timothy 3, which Kim read for us earlier during the service, all scripture, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. So these are his words, that's what we believe, right? And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we at Kernan, we believe the Bible is, first of all, God's word, So these are his words. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired. It is authoritative. And therefore, it is sufficient. In fact, we this is reflected how hold how high we hold the Bible in our core value. Our second core value here at the church is we want to know what the Bible says and means. So we just wanted to be clear and simple. When we stated this core value a few years ago, when we were crafting our new vision for the church, we said, you know what? We just want to know what the Bible says and means. We want to be students of the Bible. We don't want to just know what it says. We also want to know what it means, right? So we want to know what, yes, this is what the Bible says, but here's what the author's intent was, or here's what it was, the context of the day was, and here's what this means for our lives today. You see, this core value helps us remember the importance of studying God's word for our own spiritual growth, but also in preparation to have conversations with unbelievers. And that's what we're talking about today. So how are we going to talk to someone when they say, I don't believe in the Bible? And in our minds, we're thinking, man, the Bible is everything to us. We hold it high. It's it's the authoritative truth of God over us. Well, here's, I think, the first thing we need to do. Number one... Man, let's let's talk about the Bible's reliability. Let's talk about the Bible's reliability. The Bible itself tells us one of the final things Jesus said to his disciples was this. In Luke 24, Then he, Jesus, said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And by the way, I love that Jesus himself is telling his disciples right here in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, he's saying the whole Old Testament was about me, right? That's what Jesus is telling them. It was about him the whole time. The whole Old Testament was pointing like one big flashing arrow that Jesus Christ, a savior, a Messiah must come to rescue the world. Verse 45, then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem you are witnesses of these things so the disciples had this commission this job to spread the message of Jesus his gospel his life death resurrection to all nations Jesus said did they do that right that's the question did they do this and how did they do this well one way that they began doing this was by documenting, writing down the major events of Jesus' life and ministry so others could learn about him, right? So in the ancient world, of course, there's no internet, there's no printing press, everything had to be handwritten or orally told, passed down, right? And so they're writing things down As they are remembering these things, as Jesus brings it to their memory, they're writing these things down, the things they saw, the things they witnessed, they were there, right? Peter was in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm, right? So they're writing about these things. So the apostle John said this at the end of his biography of Jesus. In John chapter 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the Apostle John, who was there, right? This is an eyewitness account. He was there with Jesus. He's saying, well, there's a lot of stuff that Jesus did, but you know, my papyrus scroll is only so big, right? So I can only fit so much handwritten into this, this biography that I'm writing about his life. So these things that are in here, or what we need to know to believe. So the question is, are these written records, are these written records from the disciples, are they reliable? The late theologian, R.C. Sproul, you've heard me quote him already in the series and you'll probably hear me quote him again. He's really good with apologetic topics like these. R.C. Sproul in his book, Defending Your Faith, says that we must first prove to a skeptic that the Bible is historically reliable. In other words, that it is a well-documented and preserved ancient text that has been transmitted faithfully over the centuries. So how do we know that's true though, right? Like how do we know that the Bible is a well-preserved documented text that has been transmitted faithfully over the centuries? So I wanna give you a few things, just a few quick subpoints here to think about. And listen, by the way, I'm not trying to turn this into some kind of seminary class, all right, but this is helpful, right? If we do claim as Christians that the word of God is what we stand on, that it is absolute truth, we need to know something about it, right? And so you're going to have to probably 
uh, you know, dive deeper on your own time, but here's the starter right here, all right? So first of all, let's talk about the Bible's formation. So theologian Robert Plummer says, in discussing which books to accept as scripture, the early church insisted that recognized books be essentially three things. Number one, apostolic. So that means that the books the early church were receiving as they were being passed around Palestine, right, and into Europe, they were written by or tied closely to an apostle, right? So they were written by or tied closely to a first-hand eyewitness of Jesus, which also means all the books were written within the first century. So that's very early. Number two, so not only must they be apostolic, they must be universal. In other words, widely, if not universally, recognized by all the churches, right? So if one false gospel, such as the gospel of Thomas, right, or something like that that you've heard of in the Da Vinci Code or whatever, right? If, you, if they're getting this and they're like, well, nobody else has this, right? Well, have you guys got this, right? Have you received, nobody else, where did this come from, right? Well, it's not legit then. Right? So they're universally accepted. Number three, they must have been orthodoxed. In other words, that means not in contradiction to any recognized apostolic book or doctrine. So they must agree in truth. So that's a pretty tight requirement there. They must have been written by or tied closely to an apostle, right? They must be widely accepted by all the churches and they must not contradict one another. So Robert Plummer says that all the New Testament documents were viewed as authoritative and were circulating already among the churches by 80, 90, or 100. That is early. All right, so that's the formation. Number two, by the way, there's a lot more that you could dive into. Uh, we don't have time to get into all the interesting facts and details, but they're out there, and you can, you can search it yourself. I'm going to give you a resource here in a second. But number two, transmission. So not only formation, but transmission of the Bible over the years. So uh, Doug Powell, apologist, he says, the transmission of the New Testament was not like the game telephone, right? So, you know, you remember when you were a kid in school, you know, we all sat in a circle and did the game telephone, you know what I'm talking about, where one person whispers in their ear. So, so if we did that in here, right, so let's just say we started over here uh, with Carol, right? So, hey, Carol. So we're going to start with Carol, all right? And he's going he's gonna to whisper, right? He's going to whisper into Destiny's ear, did you, did you hear that growl in my tummy? Right? Did you hear that growl in my tummy? And by the time y'all pass it all the way down around here to John Dye, he's going to say, uh, I think they said Pastor Andrew's jokes aren't funny. I think that's what, I think that's what they said. That's what, that's what I heard, right? <laughs> See how I work? Yeah, okay. So when a church, <laughs> so Powell says this, he says, when a church received a document from an apostle, okay, so the apostle Paul, right, he's writing a letter, all right, and he's writing a letter to who? To the, to the uh, Christians living in Ephesus, okay? And so he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. And so they get it, and they read it, right? And so what do they do? Well, they make sure that it's apostolic, that it's universal, that it's orthodox, and so they get this, and what do they start doing? They start making handwritten copies, not just one, not just one copy. No, 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 no. He says they would make numbers, multiple copies to send to other churches, so it's not like the game telephone. There's multiple copies of the same document. The recipients also made multiple copies and sent them to other churches and so on and so on. And they just continue to spread. And I love this. He says, this process ensures preservation of the original because you can compare a mistake in one to all the other copies, right? The more manuscripts you have, the more accurately the original text can be recovered. 
So here's some interesting facts for you, okay? You don't have to write this down, but this is just really cool to think about. We have nearly 6,000. In the year 2023, 2,000 years later, we have nearly 6,000 ancient manuscripts or portions of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. In comparison, the next best, the next best, second place is of, of a well-documented ancient text is Homer's Iliad. And it only has 643. But see, here's the thing, right? You walk into any public university, right? And you talk, start talking about Homer's Iliad, they're gonna be like, oh yeah, yeah, great. That's great, yeah, yeah. We're really well-preserved there, good text, right? But then you start talking about the Bible, like, well, we're not sure about that, right? But the proof is there. The ancient texts are documented. We have them. So number, number three, or C, I should say, consistency. So not just formation, not just transmission, consistency. R.C. Sproul, he says, one way the Bible substantiates its own authority is its amazing coherency and symmetry. It's consistency over centuries and through the pens of multiple authors in multiple locations, by the way, is nothing less than astonishing. The record of fulfilled prophecy simply between the Testaments should be evidence enough to convince the most hardened skeptic, he says. It's amazing. I mean, how in the world could Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, predict something 700 years before it happened and then it happens exactly this way he said it would, right? And you're talking about people in different geographical locations over multiple decades and centuries writing about the same things and they agree? without some of them ever even meeting or talking to one another? D, credibility. Multiple theologians have made some good points here I want to share with you. So for example, why would, why would the disciples make any of this up? Right? Why would they make any of this up in the New Testament? They had nothing to gain. Right? In fact, it's, it's believed in church history that most of them, and we know for sure some of them, but it's believed that most, if not all of them, died for their faith. Why would you die for something that you knew was a lie? Would you really? Like, would you really go to your death knowing that you were dying for something that you had completely fabricated? No. Not willingly, you wouldn't. You would fight that. Another example is the fact that the apostles recorded that the first people to the tomb when Jesus was resurrected from the grave were women. Why is that significant? You see, in the ancient world, women's testimony were, was not even permissible in court. Right? So it was just a different world back then where a woman could not even testify in court. So why on earth, if the disciples were trying to make up this grand legend that Jesus rose from the grave, why would they have said that women were the first ones to the tomb? They would never have put that in there. As Tim Keller and others have said, it's because they were telling us what actually happened. They were writing down what actually happened. They had nothing to gain. The point is this. The evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is overwhelming. The Bible is the best documented book in the history of the world. If these kinds of things that we're talking about today, if they are the stumbling block for someone in your life, for someone you know, then I do. I encourage you to dig deeper perhaps into some of these topics and just be prepared to talk about them if they come up. Again, with what? Gentleness and respect. We're not trying to win an argument. We're not trying to sound smart. That's not at all what this is about. It's with gentleness and respect. We just want people to see the goodness of God and how he's been good to us. We want to share that with them. So here's a good resource. Uh, you can find this on Amazon. 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible by Robert Plummer. If you want to jot that down, if you're interested in learning more about some of this stuff we just talked about, 
uh, that's a great resource. 40 questions <clears throat> about interpreting the Bible by Robert Plummer. He was a seminary, I'm sorry, he was a professor uh, at the seminary I attended. Okay, so that may be one talking point about the Bible, okay? So let's talk about its reliability, but here's another, number two. Let's talk about God's desire to know us. Let's talk about God's desire to know us. All right, so think about it. Now, what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, if we can establish with someone that God is perfect, so the person would at least agree, yes, I do believe there is a God. And yes, I, I admit he must be perfect or else he cannot exist. We talked about that last week, so I'm not going to rehash that, right? That he is infinite in all of his attributes, that he is infinitely powerful, he's infinitely wise, he's infinitely good, all right? If that is true, if that much is true, then think about this. It makes sense that a personal God would want us to know about him and give us a way to know about him, would it not? Right? If he's perfect in all his ways and he's a personal God who wants to know us, then why would he fail or how could he fail in getting information accurately to us? A perfectly powerful and a perfectly loving God would not let us flounder with a lack of truth or a lack of information or to be misled by only false information about him. You see, God tells us he tells us about himself in really two ways. Now, the first way is not the Bible. The first way is through creation itself. So I, I love, one of my favorite things is just looking up into uh, the night sky. You know, now here in the city, we don't see many stars. Occasionally, we'll see a, a one bright one, right? Or looking out over the ocean, right? Or, or looking at a pretty sunset. I don't necessarily get up early enough to see the sunrise, but I've heard it's beautiful. Um, <laughs> Psalm 19, right? Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So in other words, what David is telling us is there are clues all around us. There are clues in the universe. There's, there's these pieces of, of evidence that there must be an ultimate designer. There must be someone who made this. This just can't happen. It's too complex. It's too intricate. It's too beautiful. It's too purposeful. So there's these clues, this evidence all around us pointing to the truth that there must be a God, but that's not enough. That's not enough. You see, God did not leave us, though, without a way to know the details of who he is. It's so beautiful that our God wants to know us, that he desires to know you. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at what Paul said. In verses 3 through 7, he said, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that we come to the knowledge of his truth. For there is, he says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself 
as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, Paul says. See, the apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, says that, first of all, God desires to know us. He desires to save us. And that Jesus is the only way for that to happen. And it's, it's his job to spread this message. It's, it's, it's Paul, Paul saying of himself, it's my job now as a follower of Jesus to spread this message about him to all people. But what we need to see here is that God wants to be known. He wants us to know him. And so it makes sense that he would provide the Bible for us, the scriptures written down faithfully and transmitted faithfully over the years and well brought together and documented over the years that God would ultimately be in charge of that, that he would be sovereign over that process to give us a reliable source of his truth so that we may come to the knowledge of the truth, so that we can learn about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, how great he truly is, how the maker of those oceans and sunsets and starry nights that we look at is not a distant God whom we cannot fully know. No, he is a God who wants to be known. You see, it makes sense if you think about it. R.C. Sproul says if we can show that the biblical record is historically reliable, as we just talked about in our first point, he says then we must move to the biblical writer's description of Jesus' flawless character. If his character is reliable, then his claims are reliable. In other words, why would a, a good man, a perfect man, a perfect God man, God in the flesh, character, why, why would his, if he's a man of perfect character, why would he lie? Why would he fabricate about himself? If Jesus is God and his words are true, that means the Bible really is the word of God. And if that's true, that changes everything. It changes everything. That brings us to our third and final point I want to share with you today. We also need to talk about the authoritative story of God. The authoritative story of God. As we engage with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with the other parents and our kids' activity, just with our longtime friends, with anyone who has yet to profess Jesus as their Savior, to put their faith in Him and who He really is, as the Bible says. If that's the stumbling block, I think it's helpful. I think it's important that we talk about the authoritative story of God. If God has spoken, and we say He has, then we better listen. We better listen because His words are necessarily authoritative over us. You see, but when talking about the authority of the Bible, what we want to be careful with is to, is to help. We want unbelievers to, to see that the Bible, it's not just a set of rules. Because I would, I would bet you, I would bet you that, that most non-Christians, if you're going to talk to them about the Bible itself, one of their first thoughts is going to be, it's just, a, it's just a rule book. Or it's a guidebook, right? You know, the Ten Commandments, the other commandments I've heard about, 
don't eat this, don't do that, right? They're just gonna, they're gonna think that it's probably just a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? But what we need to be clear is that the Bible is not just a set of rules that we must live by in order to get God to love us, right? It's not telling us like, hey, if you do steps one, two, and three, then God will probably be happy with you and you'll probably impress him a little bit and he'll probably let you into heaven, right? That's not it. So I want to quote a a really deep theological book to you. I actually want to read some of it to you. Uh, It's very deep. It's very theological. It's a children's Bible. Um, And uh, we read this to our kids. Christy and I read this to our kids. And uh, it's really good. So this is from the Jesus Storybook Bible. At the very beginning of this Bible, here's what it says. It says, now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Couldn't say it better myself, that's why I read it to you. (laughs) It's so true, isn't it? John chapter 1, the Apostle John said, In the beginning was the Word. What kind of words are we talking about here? Well, it's not plural and it's capitalized. In other words, the capital W word. Who is the word? What is the word? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He. This capital W is personal. He. He was in the beginning with God. And then down in verse 14, John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his Glory, glory as of the only, here's who he is, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why is that significant when we're talking about the Bible? You see, the Bible is a story about the word. The words of God are about the word, Jesus Christ, who has been and always will be. He is the eternal God, the eternal Son of God who has come down to earth to rescue us from our own rebellion against him. You see, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to do what we could not do. He came to live according to all those rules that you and I can't live by. 
So when we're talking about the Bible with someone, or maybe we're just even thinking about our own Christian life, our own walk with the Lord, let's not get caught up in thinking, if I can just do this, if I can just do that, or if I could just sharpen up some of these, smooth out some of these rough edges in my life, if I can just kind of get my act together, then God will be happy with me or he'll accept me. I'll know that I belong to him if I can do this and I can do that and I can just prove myself. We must be careful not just in dialogue with others about the Bible, but ourselves to not begin to think that it's somehow about us. No, you see, the gospel, the story of the Bible tells us No, it's not about you. It's not about how how good you can be. Stop. Stop thinking about yourself so much. No. Turn your eyes, fix your eyes on Jesus the Christ who came to earth to live that perfect life that you so wish you could live. But he also died because he was perfect. He was able to substitute himself for you in your place. In other words, the sin that we accumulate in our lives, the sin that we are guilty of in our own nature and who we are at our core separates us from a holy God. But Jesus steps in. He put himself on the cross and died in your place to pay the penalty, the death penalty for your rebellion against God because he loves you, because he desires to know you. And then he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave because the payment of our sin was accepted by God the Father. So he has been risen. He's alive. He's alive. And so we worship not a thought. We don't worship a concept. We don't look in the Bible and see, oh, that's cute. That's a funny story. That's a great story. That's a helpful story. No, we see a story. We see a one complete story of a God who knows and wants to know his people and loves his people. So what do we need to do in response? We must see the Bible as being authoritative. We must open it and read this story and learn about this story and see how it applies to our lives. And so what's the key? Stop trying to write your own story. Stop trying to write your own story. Just get swept away in the beautiful story of God in which you are already a part. So play that role that you've been given. The follower of Jesus in the year 2023 in the neighborhood or the apartment complex that you live in right now, that's the role God's given you to play in his story. How beautiful is that? See, this is how, this is how we must present the truths of the Bible. They're not isolated stories. No, in the context of the greater story of who God is and how he's called us into his story, Talking about the Bible, you know, talking about the Bible with a friend, it's really an excellent pathway to sharing the gospel as I just did with you, right? Because it's a story, right? So if if you're already talking about something that they may not realize it's a story, but start talking about the story. We always must remember our our lives, our lives, not just our words, not just telling them the story, but our lives are the greatest testimony as we tell the story. So don't forget that, right? Our lives must match what we claim to believe. So, so live out the truths of the Bible in your daily life. Get to know God's word. Spend time reading the story. Spend time in prayer about the story so that you can understand, so the Holy Spirit can change and transform your thinking. And then we can discuss how the Lord is working in our hearts with others. You know, Hebrews 4, many of you know this verse, Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. R.C. Sproul says, the Bible criticizes me far more effectively than I can hope to criticize it. Boy, isn't that true? And when you really, when you really have that moment, that quiet moment of time with the Lord, with the Word of God open before you, you're spending time in prayer about what you're reading, you're thinking about it, you're meditating on it, what happens in that moment? You're not criticizing the Bible. Let me tell you, it's criticizing you. It's convicting you, but it's also comforting you. It's encouraging you. It's deepening your faith and your understanding in a way that nothing else or no one else could possibly do in this world. Do we believe the Bible is God's word? Yes. Do we believe God's word has the power to save, the power to transform? Absolutely. So how has that been true in your life? Share that with others. If the Bible is what's hanging, if that's, if, that's, if that's the stumbling block for someone, talk about how the Bible has transformed your life, your thoughts, the way you interact in your friendships, the way maybe you have overcome certain addictions or, or hangups or anger problem, whatever, whatever it is, however the Bible, however God, however the Holy Spirit has transformed you, don't be afraid to share an encouraging, in an encouraging way, right? But let's not boast, it's not, we're not trying to be proud or brag, that's not what we're doing. But when the timing's right, with gentleness and respect and humility, don't boast in yourself, boast in Christ. Boast in God and how he can truly work in their life. Those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are looking for answers, show them. Show them the transforming power of the word of God. If the Bible is true, if it really is the words of God, then that means it necessarily carries authority over all of our lives, whether we realize it or not. So in closing, I want us to essentially ask ourselves two questions. Number one, what's my relationship with the Bible right now? Do you claim to be a Christian? Do you claim to be a true follower of Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus Christ and his gospel message that I shared with you just a moment ago? If you say yes to that, then that's the first question I want you to ask yourself is how am I doing right now myself, not anybody else in this room, no, how am I doing with the Bible? In other words, are you engaging with God's word on a regular basis? Are you spending time in prayer as you read God's word? Have you been able to, or have you, gotten some helpful resources, maybe some commentaries, maybe some devotionals that help you understand the scriptures if they're, if they're a little confusing to you at first? Have you, have you done the effort? Have you done the work? Have you spent the money perhaps to buy something that's going to help you think about the Bible in a clearer way that will help explain some of the historical context to you, that will help explain some of the challenges that may be true life application that you need to think about? How are you doing with the Bible right now? Is it just sitting on a shelf somewhere in your house, maybe on your nightstand, and you look at it and think, I love God, and there's my Bible. <laughs> but you never actually open it. <laughs> Where's your Bible at home? What are you doing with it? Number two, how can I prepare? Just like we talked about today, how can I prepare 
to have these healthy conversations about the Bible with an unbelieving friend. If they just truly, it's just really, they're stuck on it. They're stuck there and and they can't get past it. There's no way they believe the the Bible is God's word, that it's relevant for today's world. How can you help them? How can you encourage them to see the story, to see the truth, to see the reliability? How can you encourage them? Thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening as we talked about the Bible. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to really be a follower of Jesus and talk a little bit about what the world thinks of Christians versus how we actually should be and how we aren't sometimes. So it's going to be interesting dialogue tomorrow or next Sunday as well. But for today, I encourage you, get into God's word. Get into God's word. Love it. Learn to love it. Learn to study it. It it truly is. It truly is God's word. And it has the rich, the richness of God and his glory and his truth that can transform your life. Why don't we pray and ask the Lord to help us do that? Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you came to earth to rescue us. God, we thank you that you are infinitely sovereign and powerful, wise, good, and holy, and that you have guaranteed You have guaranteed that we have a means to know you. That you were, Lord, Lord, we we thank you that, that you were gracious enough to give us words written down that we can understand about the story that you are unfolding. So, Lord, help us to believe in this story, in you. Jesus, who you are, Son of God, Savior of the world. Jesus, help us to remember that the story is not over, that you have commissioned us to take this beautiful story, the good news of who you are, to all nations, to all people. No one is excluded. Our worst enemy is not excluded from needing to know this great truth. So Lord, let us be compassionate. Give us eyes to see the hurting and the broken around us. Give us compassionate hearts. Give us gentle tone. Give us respectful thinking as we have conversations with others. Lord, let us not try to prove to them that we have figured something out, no. Lord, let us simply encourage them and show them the goodness of who you are and that you have given a way for us to know you in your word. And Lord, finally, I pray for those who are struggling in Bible study right now. They're they're struggling to read the word of God. They're struggling to spend time with you in prayer. They're not making time to do that. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them this morning, perhaps convict them right now. That if we really claim that the Bible is your word, why would we neglect it? Why would we not turn to it always, constantly, daily as our source of 
truth and nourishment that we need. Lord, some of us are starving. Some of us in this room are spiritually starving. We are hungry, and yet we still do not turn to the only source that can fulfill us. So Lord, help us to be students of the word. Help us to be followers of your words. Help us to make time, spend time with you. And would you transform who we are? Thank you, Jesus, that we can rely on you, that you are reliable, that your word is reliable. Let us not take it for granted as we leave this place today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.